You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellaro, complete with pollen allergies, as you may detect from my voice. And this week, my guest is the director of the Vatican Observatory, Brother Guy Consolmagno. Brother Guy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Let me give you an introduction for the listeners. You earned your bachelor's and master's degrees in planetary science from MIT and your Ph.D. in planetary science from the University of Arizona. You've been at the Vatican Observatory since 1993, and you're currently the director there, where your research explores the connections between meteorites, asteroids, and the evolution of the solar system bodies. You've co-authored two astronomy books, as well as other popular books, such as one I bought a while back, even before the show started. I was reading, Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? And you are a Jesuit brother. Cool. So, a first thing on my mind is uh, terminology. What is the difference between a Catholic priest and a brother? Well, brothers are sort of like nuns. We live in a religious community. We take vows, the same vows that the other members of the community take, but we're not ordained. So, my job is not to lead public prayer. Um, I joke that I can hear your confession, but I can't forgive you. Actually, I can't even hear it. Um <clears throat> In other words, no, I don't marry people and I don't get married myself. The three vows that I take are poverty, chastity, and obedience. And I joke that poverty I was used to because I was a grad student and chastity I was used to because I was a grad student. But (laughs) obedience, that was the tough one. That was a hard one to get used to. All right. And I've seen on your book um, the annotation SJ instead of what I would expect it, PhD. What does the SJ stand for? That's the religious order I belong to, which is, in English, you would say Society of Jesus. It's the Latin version of the same thing. And that's the order that's commonly called the Jesuits. Do people ever call you doctor, or do they just settle on brother guy? Well, there are so many different ways. Uh, my, My nephew calls me, you know, uncle brother, which I think is pretty good. Um, I am a PhD, but... Let's face it, most people in the astronomy world, we don't use the doctor phrase unless we're out in uh, trying to sell books or something. (laughs) Yeah, you've written quite a few interesting books. So tell me about your PhD thesis at the University of Arizona. What was that all about? Well, the honest truth is my master's thesis was a whole lot more interesting. Uh, I did my master's at MIT with a fellow named John Lewis, and he had this crazy idea back in the early 70s that the moons of Jupiter might be a mixture of rock and ice, and if you could work out how much heat would come out of the rock from radioactive decay, you could determine whether or not the ice would melt. And so for my master's thesis, I did just that with a big computer program, stack of computer cards, going into one of the few computers at MIT in the days. And we predicted that a body like Europa should have a thin icy crust, a relatively thick uh, ocean, liquid ocean, and then a big rocky core with maybe metal in the middle. Everything I predicted in the thesis turns out to be right, but all my reasons turned out to be wrong. (laughs) You know, I miscalculated lots of things. The PhD thesis, uh, I was interested in whether or not you could find electromagnetic effects in the early solar nebula. And the short answer is no, you can't. Uh, We tried four or five different ways where the magnetic fields might be tied to a cold nebula. And none of the answers turned out to be particularly interesting. But in the process, at least I showed my committee that I knew how to handle bustle functions. Yeah, that's the ticket for research and uh, going on to a college position is your license 
is the PhD, and you got to prove you can do certain stuff. Yep. Yep. So were you at Tucson or Phoenix? Tucson, please, don't ever confuse the two. Uh, Tucson is the good school with uh, the really long tradition. And, and these Kid people Peak. <clears throat> and Kitt Peak and Mount Graham and uh, a lot of other telescopes all over the place. Um, Arizona State, I've got to admit, it's got a pretty darn good planetary science department now. But back when I was a student, which is longer ago than I want to admit, um, basically Tucson was the only show in town. Cool. But you were working on the theoretical electromagnetic effects, so you probably didn't spend any time on the Kitt Peak scopes. I did as a grad student just to try out to see if I was going to be very good at it. And uh, at the time, I was really good at breaking equipment and dropping filters, so I figured I'd better be a theorist. <laughs> All right. So we're going to jump over a little bit of time here, and uh, I want to ask you, uh, how did you join the Vatican Observatory? How did that happen? Well, I really do have to confess, uh, 20 years of my life, I had all sorts of adventures between here and there. Uh, basically, yeah, I read about that, Peace Corps <clears throat> and teaching. Yeah, I was teaching at a little college in Pennsylvania called Lafayette College, and I was having the time of my life. I really liked it there. I liked the students. I liked the small college teaching. And at the time, I'd been dating somebody up in Boston. And when that ended, it was kind of a relief on everybody's part because – she was a brilliant woman, but we were not really right for each other. And at that point, I thought, well, what do I really want to do with myself? And I realized I was more interested in teaching than in any of the other things. And I'd always been a Catholic, you know, an Italian dad and Irish mom, so it kind of came with the territory. I realized if I joined the Jesuits, I could be teaching at a small Jesuit college, a place like maybe uh, Loyola in Baltimore or Loyola in Chicago. And in addition, I could stand for something more than just my own career, kind of like I had done when I was in the Peace Corps, standing for something more than just my own career. So I joined the Jesuits with the thought that I'd be teaching at a university. But that vow of obedience kicked in. And when they saw my background, without asking, I was instructed with a letter from Rome that I had to move to Rome eat that terrible Italian food, look at that boring scenery, and oh yes, join the Vatican Observatory, where my task, my assigned job was do good science. Period. I could choose whatever science I wanted to do. Didn't depend on NASA's, you know, uh, flavor of the month that month. And in addition, I discovered that they had more than a thousand meteorites in a collection that had been mostly put together by a French nobleman a hundred years earlier. So I was in hog heaven. Does NASA <clears> have <throat> access to the collection? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm certainly part of the big meteorite community. And in order to really put myself on the map for the first 10 years or so, I was a pretty easy person to get samples from as long as you told people where the samples came from. Hmm. Uh, nowadays, uh, now that we're better established, uh, the new curator who took over after I became the director back in 2015, he's a little bit tighter in how he'll loan samples out, but he still does loan things. One of the classic examples, and this is something you learn about, we had a wonderful piece of a Martian meteorite called Cassini. Very rare, very important. And I had thin sections made of it, a number of thin sections, precisely so that we could loan these to scientists who were looking to get a sample of this rare meteorite. And as a result, the downside is, you look over all the papers published about Cassini in the last 
25 years, and more than half of them are based on the same thin section, you know, the same couple of thin sections. So it was really good that I could loan them out. Maybe not so good that we weren't sampling the entire meteorite. Hmm. Interesting. So how did you ascend to the director position? Was that just natural maturity yeah, dumb luck. and evolution? <laughs> dumb luck. <laughs> dumb luck. Nobody um, else wanted it, huh? Absolutely. That's certainly the case. One of the great things about the Jesuit order is if you show ambition for a job that will make sure you don't get it. It's actually written into the laws that way. And I can think of a lot of jobs that you want to vote against whoever was who wants the job because you've got to figure there's something crazy about them. Um, basically, the job had been for life. And when for poor father George Coyne had had the job for 30 years and he was in his mid-70s and said, please get me out of here. They changed it to a five-year term renewable. So the fellow who followed George Coyne, a wonderful guy from Argentina, Jose Funes, had the job for two terms, about 10 years, and that was enough for him. So I happened to be the right person in the right stage of my life. There are people at the observatory older than me, people younger than me, but I'm the guy, you know, at that point in my early 60s, and that seemed to be a logical person to plug into the spot. Your bio says that your research there explores the connections between meteorites, asteroids, and the evolution of small bodies in the solar system. Tell yeah, that goes that. back that goes back to my work with the icy moons. Um, I was really interested in modeling how these things would evolve over time. Where does the heat come from? Where is the heat going? What happens to the body as it experiences its heat? And the the first research I did with the meteorites was to measure densities and heat capacities and thermal properties, exactly the numbers that I always knew I needed in my computer models. At this point, I'm much better at measuring the numbers than doing the computer models because computers have gone a whole lot further than where I was back in 1970 bubble. So uh, <clears throat> basically, at this point, the one asteroid that I've really worked on a lot is asteroid Vesta and trying to understand what my density numbers tell us against what the Dawn spacecraft says of the density and the structure of the entire asteroid. I've got uh, my own ideas, which are not particularly popular, but what can I say? I'm right and they're wrong. Well, time will tell. Cool, cool. So I want to move on now because we have to, we have a lot to cover. So tell me, how I, why does the Vatican have an observatory in the first place? Well, because we couldn't afford a particle accelerator, so, you know, astronomy was cheap. <clears throat> there are three different ways you can answer the question. The, the practical one, it started out with reforming the calendar in the 1580s, and you needed astronomers to make sure they were reforming the calendar correctly. Right. In the end of the 19th century, it was important to show the world that the church was not anti-science because that idea of a war between science and religion, that's a Victorian idea. And so that really became important then to show, no, look, really, the church is not anti-science. It was also important for the Vatican to show that it was an independent nation, independent of Italy with its own national observatory. But the really deeper question is, why does anybody do astronomy? It's not going to make you rich. You know, it's not going to make you famous. It's not going to get you girls. Didn't work for me. So why do we do astronomy? And I think there is an answer which in its own way is religious, even if you don't want to call it that. It's not only a search for truth, but it's an awareness that there is a universe bigger than just me and what's for lunch. 
Our place astronomy in the can have many different interpretations. <clears throat> Our place in the universe, but just knowing that there is a universe, more than just me, more than just my immediate needs. And what does that say about who I am? That was something I learned in the Peace Corps. That was something I learned from people in remote parts of Kenya who started asking me about questions of how they fit in the universe and what do astronomers tell them about those wonderful things we're looking at in our telescopes. It's something that makes us human. It's something that makes us more than just well-fed, contented cows. Do you ever, as head of the Vatican Observatory, brief the current pope on issues he may have questions about? Well, every year we give them uh, an annual report of the things we do, but I've never had a particular question with Pope Francis about, you know, hey, what are they saying about the Big Bang, that sort of thing. The fact of the matter is, um, number one, he's got a science background himself, you know, he studied chemistry as a young man, and he's got a collection of experts who can talk to him in his own language, and I don't just mean Spanish from Argentina, but also people that he can relate with easily so that when he asks a question, he's not afraid of asking a stupid question. You need friends like that. And the, the 25 years I've been at the observatory, all the popes have had that. They've had their own little kitchen cabinet of people they can go to. And I know certainly Francis has this because when you read Laudato Si, it's got great science in it. And I had nothing to do with that. Is there still this uh, large science team that consults with the Pope, biologists and mathematicians and chemists that advise the Pope on stem cell research and other scientific issues? Yeah, that and team? that's actually formally done. It's called the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Right. And there are as many scientists on this board as there are cardinals. That's the way it's designed. Uh, you don't have to be Catholic. You don't even have to be a believer. Stephen Hawking was a member. And they have a number of meetings over the years on particular topics such as stem cells, such as the environment. But they also have general meetings once every two years, which I get to take part of because as a director of the observatory, I'm ex officio a member of this. Uh, it's great because I wind up sitting at the table along with uh, Nobel Prize winners. You have cosmologists on that group? Absolutely. We've also got cosmologists in our team. Uh, after all, the fellow who invented the Big Bang Theory was George Lemaitre, a Catholic priest. That's right. That's right. Well, invented the first notion of the Big Bang Theory. Um, right. He basically, he, he was, his theories were the origin of what we now call the Big Bang. It's like every theory. Lots of people had a hand in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, next up, I'm going to ask you about some interesting theological and religious questions after the break. But for now, we have to take a short commercial message. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with the director of the Vatican Observatory, Brother Guy Consolmanio. We'll be right back. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI slash CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 
Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and backup your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. I'm chatting with the director of the Vatican Observatory, Brother Guy Consolmagno. All right, now we get into some juicy questions. But first, I wanted to ask you about, in 2015, your bio says you became chair of the Mars TG. What is that? Can you fill us in? Um, The task group is what the TG stands for. The International Astronomical Union has the job of coming up with a lot of the arbitrary but necessary definitions. Uh, The most infamous one was, you know, do you call Pluto a planet anymore? But one of the things we do is name features. And it's a very tricky thing, naming features. You got to make sure you don't offend people. You got to make sure you have unique names that everybody can spell and pronounce Mm. and that uh, don't confuse people and, and maybe even have a mnemonic uh, effect to it so that if you see a crater on Mars and it's named for a person, you know that it's a certain size and it's you know, bigger than 50 or 60 kilometers across. The task... question I've always wondered about. Yeah. In the U.S., um, well, in, in the global time system, by historical precedent, zero longitude went through Greenwich because the English were the seafaring people and were more or less running the planet in the early days. So how did we determine the zero longitude line on Mars? Was that arbitrary or was there a technical basis to define it? Most all of these definitions ultimately are arbitrary. And it was based on the maps that Schiaparelli uh, put together back in the 1880s. And so we still use his zero longitude, but as we got images of Mars, we were able to determine a particular crater and a very small crater that we said, all right, the zero longitude goes through that line, and it's pretty close to where Schiaparelli's zero longitude line was. Okay. So our task group, but if, if you're a scientist, you're about to publish a paper that references a feature that hasn't been named You come to us and you say, can you give me a name for this feature? We want to be sure that it's actually going to be used in a paper. We don't want to name everything right away. We want to give future generations a chance to name their things on Mars. And then we go through a set of rules. Um, Essentially, I'll propose a name to the task group. They will say yes or no. Then it goes to the entire working group from people from other planets as well. Um, Not literally from other planets. And after it passes all of that, then the chair of the committee uh, announces this is the name that we're going to be using from now on. And please, when you use a reference to this crater, this is the name we'll all use. It's arbitrary, but you have an international group of people to make sure that all nations and all cultures are represented. And with luck, we won't offend anybody. A few years ago, I was in a bookstore and I saw this book by you, Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? And it explores lots of interesting questions. In the first half of the show, you talked about how the conflict, apparent conflict between science and religion is an old idea, and it's been worked out elegantly by many scientists who are theologically trained, such as yourself and John Polkinghorne, who's an Anglican priest who was a theoretical physicist, and others. 
But a lot of people are not familiar with the concepts and the, and the approach to the relationship between science and religion. Let's explore that for a few minutes. So, so, so tell me how you, you feel about that and what are the views and the fundamentals of this so-called, uh, if I may use the word, marriage of the two. Well, the, the conflict theory dates from the 19th century when we thought that electricity and steam engines were going to solve all of our problems. Who needs religion? Uh, and especially eugenics was going to solve all of our problems. Well, the 20th century showed what happens when technology goes crazy. And especially, you know, the death camps in Nazi Germany showed us what happens when eugenics takes hold. There's a big difference between technologically savvy and being ethically savvy. The other thing, though, is the deep theology behind why we do science in many ways, depends on our religion. If you think the physical universe is evil, you're not going to study it. If you think the physical universe is controlled by nature gods, you're not going to look for scientific answers. If you're someone who doesn't even believe there's a physical universe, that it's just all illusion, then there's no point in doing science. So there is a, a fundamental, there is this level that you have to have certain beliefs that are by their nature religious, that there is a truth before you can even start the scientific enterprise. Science and religion, in many cases, tightly joined in that case. That's an interesting Plus, phrase, <clears throat> that religion relies on the basics of truth. That's and an if interesting you, phrase. If, you, if you're not believing that what you're believing is true, why the heck are you believing it? Nonetheless... And how you believe it and the influences and, upon you. Oh, yeah, you and it's... true are very interesting... <clears throat> And the parallels between science are fascinating, because just as I start a scientific project thinking that in three years' time I'm going to come up with an answer worth writing a thesis about, I have to take that on faith. I don't know that ahead of time. If I knew ahead of time, I wouldn't have to write the thesis. In the same way, I think we can see a lot of the parallels of what's good and bad in big religion and big science all coming down to the fact that we are all fallible human beings and that science and religion both are activities of an individual working alone, but in a community of bigger people who try to keep you honest and try to make you say, wait a minute, do you really believe that? And yeah, this may be true, but you know, and I know there's going to be more to it than what you think. And that's true in religion. And that's true in science. That's one of the problems I have with fundamentalists, is that they think they know the answer. I know I don't know the answer. Or if you don't know the answer, you go to the Bible and you treat it as a science textbook. <clears throat> say, oh, oh, my goodness. The Bible and that's, says this science is true. And that's like saying, oh, I can you know, find all truth in Halliday and Resnick. And you know, all of science is <laughs> uh, getting the answers in the back of the book. Halliday and Resnick is an undergraduate physics book for the listeners. And probably not even used anymore. But the, the fact is, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, we start out doing science by trying to get the answers in the back of the book. But that's not what science is. Those are just the finger exercises that you have to do before you can play the music. And likewise, an awful lot of what we teach kids in religion when they're kids are finger exercises. They're, they're a fast way of getting up to speed to where everybody is. But that's only the beginning. That's not the end. It's a real shame that so many people stop learning science or religion when they're about 12 or 13. It's a real challenge to be well-read and intelligent about both. 
at this or either <laughs> holding both in your mind at the same time without exploding. <laughs> well, of course, that happens in science. Again, you have three or four different things that don't fit together in your science. And then you're really excited because, you know, here's a research project. I'm about to learn something new. Yeah, um, as I recall, when the Big Bang Theory was first fully developed, maybe in the 20th century, uh, there were people who said, aha, this proves that there's a God because something had to be the first cause, the first mover. And the biggest person against that idea was Father Georges Lemaitre, the Catholic priest who had come up with the idea, because he knew his science and he knew his theology. The creation that we talk about in ex nihilo, out of nothing, is not the same creation that Stephen Hawking is talking about at the first, you know, 10 to the minus 43 seconds uh, in the Planck time. That's not the same nothing. Creation by a creator is the creation of time and space itself, the fact that there are laws of physics. And so the creation of God, if you're going to say that God creates the universe like I do, it's a creation that didn't just happen 13.8 billion years ago, but it happens at every instant. Uh, the old theologians had it right when they said God maintains the universe, not just creates it. Right. If there weren't that sustaining force, everything would just go poof. Well, there's no reason for it to exist, because nothing can have a reason for itself within itself. A chair has no purpose unless there's your fat rear end sitting in it. <laughs> So, uh, referring again to your book on extraterrestrials, I want to quote John 14, 2. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not true, I would have told you. What do you take away from that? Uh, given that the Bible is not a science textbook, mm -hmm. what's the current interpretation of that phrase? <clears throat> most, most people would not put an extraterrestrial spin on it any more than uh, also in John when he's got the, uh, the story of the Good Shepherd and he says, and there are other sheep that I also have to go to. You go, aha, extraterrestrials. Right. <clears throat> really, you don't want to say this particular piece of the Bible fits that particular scientific theory. It's, it's bad theology, not to mention pretty awful science. What you do want to say is that the Bible itself is telling you there is more to God than what's in the Bible. The Bible itself is telling you that there's more to being a religious person than following rules. Um, if you want to be a fundamentalist about what's in Scripture, read those parts of Scripture that tell you that's just the beginning to say that here's where we have a starting point of this is a story about Jesus, but Jesus is not the sum of what's in a few short books. He was a human being with phenomenally complicated background and ideas that take a lifetime to understand. We can barely understand our best friend. How do we think we can understand someone from a different culture who lived 2,000 years ago? And yet, it's like saying the universe is so big, how could I possibly understand the Big Bang? I never will entirely. And yet... The joy is in the trying to do just that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, from time to time, I sense that there is, in our culture, there is this hunger for uh, benign extraterrestrials uh, who will come and save us from ourselves. The early mm -hmm. spacecraft pioneer who Carl Sagan worked on have plaques advertising about us and our position. 
in space and time. Some some people have worried that uh, that's a bad idea. Interstellar pornography. My gosh, they didn't have clothes on. Well, there could be (laughs) could be people who are hunting for Mm -hmm. uh, civilizations to prey upon and. There's been I've been reading about some second thoughts about how wise advertising our presence was. I think by Jill Tarter, uh, mm-hmm. one of those who was former the head of the SETI Institute. Let's mm-hmm. keep our heads down and kind of wait and see what's going on and keep on searching, keep on looking. Um, is that hunger to, um, to be saved from ourselves uh, really misplaced? Maybe it's representative of a different kind of spiritual hunger. Well, it's it's a religion substitute, that's for sure. Uh, I think the best example of that is in the classic science fiction movie, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm. where the alien classic. comes and he's going to have all the answers. This is uh, the 1954 version, please. Oh, yeah. And in case you didn't get the parallel, the guy who's got all the answers calls himself Mr. Carpenter. Okay, we already had a savior, you know, and you saw what happened to him. And you see what happens to poor Mr. Carpenter at the end of the movie. We human beings can't have other people make our ethical decisions for ourselves, much as we wish we could. You know, when you walk into a room and flip a switch, you don't have to understand electricity to make the light come on. But when you walk into a room and you have to make an ethical decision about the people standing there waiting for you to hear what you're going to say, you can't rely on anybody else's uh, advice You can't say, well, Socrates worked this all out 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. You've got to come up with it by yourself. And every one of us ultimately has to do this. Even as we learn from the examples of other, at the end of the day, we have the responsibility and the freedom to make our own ethical decisions. And we're going to make mistakes and we have to have a system that allows for the fact that we're going to make mistakes. Do you think we'll wiggle out of the uh, climate change uh, extinction scenario? If we do, it's only to wiggle into some other totally unintended <laughs> you know, consequence. <clears throat> this ever, is a great thing. that increasing <clears throat> succession of challenges. Indeed. This is a great thing that Pope Francis says in his encyclical, Let Out of Sea, that at the end of the day, climate change is basically human sinfulness, and we've been living with that since Adam and Eve, which is a symbolic way of saying since there were human beings. Hmm. All right. So the next question I have for you is, when I was a young astronomer in training, uh, I read about sky simulation and planetarium programs that were run backwards in time, trying to find something that was in the sky at 4 BC. Did I get that date right, 4 BC? Well, some would say 2, some would say 7, some would say 8. That's one of the troubles with the Star of Bethlehem. You can't even agree on what year it is you're aiming at. And the answer is not that there is nothing in the sky, but that there are so many things there might have been that you cannot come up with the unique answer. And well, theologically, if, if you look at all the different potential dates, I don't think anybody's found anything that oh. uh, would be significant. Oh, yeah, I, I, can, I can name three different theories, all of them lovely, and all of them completely unprovable. Um, there were a couple of grand conjunctions of planets around 7 BC. There was uh, one where I think Mars, or, or, or Venus and Jupiter were so close together that to the naked eye they might have looked like one planet. And I think that was maybe around 2 BC. My favorite 
was uh, worked out by a fellow named Michael Molnar, who points out that there was the heliacal rising of all of the planets in the constellation of Aries in March or April of 4 BC. Heliacal rising means that these planets were all next to the sun. And so you couldn't actually see them rise together, but the calculations of Magi would have been able to say, aha, something significant is happening here. And it turns out this is the same kind of thing that uh, Augustus Caesar used to prove that he needed to be uh, made Caesar and you know, emperor of the Romans. Is this what Matthew's actually talking about? I don't know. You know, I didn't have a videotape to interview him or the Magi to find out. It's a cool idea, but it's not unique, and we'll never know. Is it a fundamental necessity to prove there was an astronomical event? Of course not. Could there have been a, perhaps what we would call a miracle? <clears throat> it could have been a miracle. It could have been a, uh, a pious story designed to tell you something. All of these things are possible. What, 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 what is essential is, what's the story about? If you get lost in the sky, you forget what the story is supposed to be telling you about, which is the birth of this really interesting character, Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. So that brings up my final question. Um, there's been some discussion lately in Sky and Telescope and other places about how we might be able to figure out what caused the Big Bang and work back deeper in time as a, as a true science? How, do, how, does that, how do religious people feel about that? Well, it, it's not even religious people. It's philosophers. There is a classic differentiation between primary and secondary causes. Science works on a chain of causality. And everything that occurs, you assume, has something that occurred before it, which gave rise to it. Now, you can push back many possibilities into the Planck time, and maybe even a universe before the Planck time. Uh, Stephen Hawking infamously did this by saying that the Big Bang was a quantum fluctuation in the space-time continuum, these mm -hmm. warps that, are, that we call gravity. And he says, because there is a thing called gravity, I can explain why the Big Bang happened, and therefore I don't need God. Which misunderstands what I was saying before. If God is only that thing that started the Big Bang, then God's no more than gravity or Zeus, you know, just another nature entity. On the other hand, if you think that God is the thing that started the Big Bang, and then gravity is the thing that started the Big Bang, that makes gravity into God, uh, which I don't think Stephen Hawking really wanted to say, but at least it would explain why Catholics celebrate Mass. <laughs> well, you know, you should always ask a chemist uh, your favorite problem because a chemist will always have a solution. Indeed. There are any number of terrible jokes we could bounce back and forth. <laughs> All right. So we've come to the end of the show. We're about out of time. Do you have any closing thoughts? I'm, I'm out of bad Tyson jokes, would, too. As Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, we've, we've discussed the cosmic perspective. Any closing and, thoughts? <clears throat> It's interesting. Neil's a great friend. Um, I knew Carl Sagan when um, you know I was a young man, and he was very active. A lot of people who would say that they have trouble with religion, I understand that. I understand people who say they have trouble with big science. What we all really have trouble with is human frailties and seeing our own liabilities to make bad mistakes visible in everything else we see. The miracle is that science at the end of the day does work, that 
religion at the end of the day does carry forth to the next generation ideas of how we should live, even if we're not particularly good at living that way. And it gives me hope for the future, and it gives me a delight to be part of a universe with so many wonderful people that keep me honest and keep me thinking. Well said. Well said. Okay, so now we're really out of time. We have to bring the show to a close. So tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish and say nice things. Well, the best place is through a website that's called Sacred Space Astronomy. And on that website, you will find links to our other web pages and through the web pages, places where you can contact me. But if you're really interested in the work that the observatory does and lots of conversations like the one we've had here, go to Sacred Space Astronomy and check it out. All one word, dot com? No, no, it, it's actually three words. You Google it because it's VO Foundation, all one word, dot org. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on the show. This has been a fascinating and excellent discussion. I appreciate you joining me. And I'm delightful. I'm, <clears throat> try that again. And I'm delighted to be here. And thanks a whole lot for having me. And you are delightful. Listeners, <laughs> I'm really glad you came by. I hope you've joined, enjoyed the show with Dr. and brother Guy Consolmagno, director of the Vatican Observatory. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.